and welcome to this special end-of-year episode of the International Studies Review of Books podcast. My name is Hasbanai, the Books and Reviews Editor at the ISR, the flagship review journal of the International Studies Association. In this episode, we thought it would be fun and hopefully engaging some for some of our listeners to share our editorial team's most notable reads of 2023. Two of my colleagues on the editorial team, Crystal Ennis and Nicola Blorel, both associate editors at ISR, join me in discussing some of our favorite, most notable, most engaging reads from last year. We have limited our picks to just two books per person for time and clarity purposes, but we each could have just as easily settled for 10 or more. In any event, we hope you enjoyed the special end of year episode, and we look forward to many more book review podcast episodes in 2024. Happy holidays. I'm joined by two of my colleagues on the editorial team. Welcome to the discussion. Uh, why don't we go around and introduce ourselves and we can get to our book picks for the um, year. Um, please, Crystal. Hi, my name is Crystal Ennis. I'm an associate editor here with the International Studies Review. And uh, in my full-time job, I lecture at Leiding University in international political economy. Thank you. I am um, Nico Blorel. I'm also, um, I'll teach international relations at uh, Leiden University, and I'm also an associate editor at ISR. And I'm Hasbanai, the books and reviews editor at ISR, and I teach international relations at the Hamilton Luger School at Indiana um, University. Um, all right, Crystal, why don't we start with you? What are your two uh, best or most notable reads for this past year? Thank you, Hass. I'm really glad you organized this uh, discussion for us. It was actually really difficult to choose and narrow down um, only two books um, uh, from the last year. Um, so the first one I chose uh, is, a, is an international political economy book, and this is by Eric Heliner. It just came out in the summer of this year called The Contested World Economy, The Deep and Global Roots of International Political Economy with Cambridge University Press. Um, and uh, I found this book particularly compelling well, in a, in a lot of ways, but you know, one of the central debates we've been having in IR and IPE has been about global IR or how to globalize IR. You know, looking at these claims that IR as a discipline sits in the West and is either treated pretty insularly while making claims about being international, um, or it's pretty unidirectional. You know, where the foundational hypotheses and theories are based on the experiences of some and largely ignore large swaths of others. So the question is, you know, how can we have a truly global discipline? And I think Eric takes this up in some ways, in, his, in many ways in his book. And his new, this book is really a tour de force that tackles this debate centering on the origins of IPE, looking at pre-1945. So I think all students of IPE are familiar with the three early perspectives that we all study in our textbooks, right? Economic liberalism, neo-mercantilism, and Marxism. So he starts here and shows how these international debates in IPE between the late 18th century and 1945 were really much more global than this and involved prominent thinkers from all parts of the world. And while he also starts with those you know, those three, he shows the contested nature of their ideas in multiple spaces, as well as 
all the ways of thinking about IPE that they do not address, right? So in the first section, he looks, he doesn't only talk about like Adam Smith and David Ricardo in the liberal tradition and Liston Hamilton in the mercantilist and Marx and Trotsky in Marxist traditions, you know, in the, in the reactions to liberalism. He also shows thinkers you know, as from uh, Taguchi Ukichi and Yan Fu in East Asia to Zia Golkap in Turkey, Muhammad Ali in Egypt, and uh, Manabendra Nath Roy in India and all around the world, and lots of different thinkers and their discussions and debates. And then in the second um, part, he also opens new avenues for thinking about IPE, right? Focusing like within that pre-45 era, focusing on different chapters like environmentalism, feminism, pan-Africanism, religion and civilization, regionalism. And a lot of these different debates are usually like focused in as like the new approaches to IPE at the end of our, um, our teaching, but he really shows that these wide range of ideas were already discussed pre-1945. Um, so I think it's a really nice way to start to introduce students to really the global origins of IPE and begin um, thinking both historically and theoretically with a much larger perspective. So that was my, that was the first uh, book that I chose. That's and terrific. And the other one. Sorry, before you jump to the uh, next one, in terms of the the way it's written, would you say it's accessible to, from undergraduate to graduate level? Is it more advanced or how would you... I think it would be, I haven't tried it with undergrads yet, um, but I've read it with some grad students. Um, and I think it is quite, I think it is quite accessible. And I would certainly consider including it in um, some advanced gra uh, undergraduate courses, you know, if they've already taken a, a basic introduction to IPE or introduction to IR course, then maybe like a third year seminar or something where you can dig into these, these topics. So I think it's, but it's it's written accessibly enough for all of them, but you would need to to have some foundations on um, the main questions, the main approaches, the main theoretical questions that I think IPE tackles. I see, great. Yeah, definitely going to add it to one of our reading lists for our um, IPE uh, reading list in our department. Uh, what's your next? Pick? So my next book is a is is maybe not a. Uh, wouldn't be a traditional choice for an international studies review. This is a book, it's an anthropology book. Um, it, it's, and it, it, it's really brilliant um, by Andrea Wright. It was published just a couple years ago. It's called Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil, published with Stanford University Press. And I think this book um, speaks directly to also political economy um, themes and a lot of the uh, debates that are central to international studies as a discipline as well. Um, and, you know, labor, I think, is central to all industries, um, but it's often marginalized in our histories and in our thinking about, in, in our histories and our theories of oil, primarily, I think, because oil is such a capital intensive industry. So it tends to fall into the background. But right in this book really centers labor at a transnational scale to speak to these debates in global political economy, migration governance, migration management on Indian uh, migration, and also the oil industry in the Middle East and the labor practices therein. And it's a brilliant, really multi-sided ethnography 
where she shows how the multiple actors and scale of governance, scales of governance involved in governing migration corridor between South Asia and the Gulf, which speaks a lot to the themes of the edited volume that Nicola and I published uh, last year. Um, but she, um, and- um, What was the title yeah, of that, she, the, the <laughs> edited volume? The, the migration governance complex, the South Asia to Gulf migration governance complex that was out with Bristol University. Nice Press. job tucking in another book <laughs> recommendation <laughs> in your <laughs> review. <laughs> but really because she focuses, I mean, of course, in edited volume, we have a lot of different cases, but we were really interested in these different in these different scales and different actors to think through how migration governance works more broadly, but also specifically in the same co migration corridor. And so she does this, though, through a really brilliant multi-sided ethnography where she shows, um, she talks about, you know, uh, she interviews Mumbai recruitment agencies and she visits workplaces in the Gulf and the home villages in India where migrants are originating from. And she talks to multiple actors, the recruiters, government officials and the workers themselves. So she looks like top down and also bottom up. She mastered languages on both sides to be able to do this, you know, herself. Um, and there's a couple of things that I really appreciated that, which is why, uh, you know, relevant, I think, for international studies as well. Um, one is how she really centers neoliberalism and its influence on labor and migration in the global in global capitalism, rather than these kind of methodologically nationalist takes on exploitation and, and supposedly exceptional spaces. Um, and another thing that she does is she tries to think beyond the individual in migration and this like rational actorhood push pull factors that motivate migration uh, in favor of examining transnational communities and networks and how they're built and how that then sheds light on the multiple actors that shape um, not just migration, but also regional oil production. Um, and then the third thing that I thought was really was also really compelling is how she shows how the contemporary legislation that regulates the movement of Indian citizens um, is a legacy of the British colonial era. era. And you know the the specific provisions that are put in place to control the global you know through this through the provisions that they use to control the circulation of indentured labor in during that colonial period and how this has real continuities and legacies with the with the present. And so she, you know, she argues how this um the contemporary labor market now constitutes this continued, you know, historical commodification of Indian exports, right? And so she has this chapter called From Mangoes to Men, where she talks to um, this one, one of her interviewees is a recruiting agent and based in Mumbai, and his family used to trade mangoes um, under the British colonial period to the Gulf. And then they switched to manpower after the first oil boom in the early 1970s. Um, Anyways, uh, so I think uh, I think our readers would also really appreciate reading this um, reading this book. That's terrific. It's uh, once again the name of the title of the book is "Between Dreams and Ghosts: Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil" by Andrea Wright. Andrea Wright, and that's with a W. With a W, yes. With a W. Wonderful, excellent. That also sounds like a great compliment to reading lists. Um, all right, Nico, why don't we go to you next? What are your picks? Sure. I mean, uh, 
Crystal already gave it away. We've been working on some projects together. So I actually have um, also an overlapping recommendation. It's it's also about migration in uh, in the in the ocean, but uh, another corridor happening in southeast uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia. But I'll talk about that book after. I'm I'm I basically I also had like uh, like Crystal mentioned. It's it's difficult to choose uh, two specific books. And I chose. Two books that are in line with kind of my research uh, interest uh, over the past few years, and um, one of them, and also exp can explain a little bit what I've been what I've been doing. But one of them is obviously I'm I'm a foreign policy analyst, so I like to look at domestic processes of uh, decision making when it comes to foreign policy decisions. And one of the books I really liked the reading over the last two years is um, is Sibel Oktay's uh, 2022 book uh, Governing Abroad: Coalition Politics and Foreign Policy in Europe. Uh, and University of Michigan Press, uh, but that and because that book really, I think, takes the, uh, the this emerging literature on coalition politics and foreign policy to a, to another level, uh, and I'll explain a little bit uh, why. Um, and the other book is about migration politics, and it's another research interest I have. But I'll talk first about Okta Sibel's uh, book, which I think it it starts with a really simple research puzzle: is uh, why do some uh, relatively small states uh, in Europe, like Denmark or the Netherlands, uh, where Crystal and I are based, um, relatively small, uh, <laughs> uh, are not always constrained by uh, what you know. IR scholars prefer to focus on is international systemic factors like uh, great power pressures, etc. Uh, why do not these small states do not join automatically, systematically military coalitions when there's mobilization uh, from uh, the side of the US? And she looks at domestic politics. Now, domestic politics is something that IR scholars have started, especially in FPA, looking at. But she looks at the angle of coalition politics and government structures and mainly why some coalitions can make stronger foreign policy commitments than others and others postpone or dilute their policy positions or deliver vague statements to try to uh, shy away from commitments. And she, she, through her framework, she argues, and I think very convincingly that she can explain that variation among small states and different countries that have uh, coalition, because coalition politics is becoming quite a regular feature of democratic settings. So I think it's more and more interesting to look at how coalitions, uh, coalition governments basically shape foreign policy. And she looks really at the specific constellation of parties and governments can explain why some coalitions are more assertive in their foreign policy and decision than others. And one thing she does really greatly, and I think this emerging scholarship um, on coalition politics does, is basically merging a lot of insights from comparative politics and um, scholarship on coalition, legislatures, voting behavior, et cetera, uh, which the IR scholarship has long neglected. Uh, basically, all of that, so many insights in that can explain to uh, some external behavior. And she provides, I think, another thing, and this is why it's good. It's a good book to read, not just for IR scholars or FBA scholars. It's also for any, I think, in, uh, teacher that wants to teach about research design and mixed method research design, because there's a very convincing, rigorous, uh, sophisticated mix of statistical analysis. I think she looks at a lot of 30 uh, European countries uh, over time. And she mixes also with detailed um, case studies from Denmark, Netherlands, and Finland. And these deviations that we uh, she mentions from what you would expect if you look at international systemic factors. So I really think it's a it's a major contribution that scholarship I said on coalition politics and really brings political parties back to the study of foreign policy, which again is something that IR scholarship had been moving away and focusing mostly on uh, you know external uh, stimuli or geopolitical factors. And so 
coalition, ideological proximity of governing parties, uh, relationship with parliamentary opposition, all this can explain why states act in the in the international arena. Um, and I've, yeah, and I said it, it's important because I think we have more and more coalition governments, multi-party cabinets, uh, even in countries like the UK, where it was the, the system, the existing institutional system really um, impeded, was supposed to impede this kind of uh, fragmented multi-party cabinets. So I think it's really important. It's not just, and she focuses on Western Europe, but I think there's also a lot of insights for countries outside of Europe. Um, I mean, she she looks at Israel a little bit, but also um, India is obviously also an history, history of coalition, uh, coalition government, uh, coalition governance. And I've looked at it in my own scholarship. So I really can learn. I've been learning a lot from Sibel's work. And I think we need more and more uh, to build on our scholarship insights and our, on our methodological also um, rigor. Um, I just can I ask you? Have, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it, but would you say the reading list for on this topic within IR, um, you know, in, in a general sense, is it short? It sounds like it's a kind of a pioneer, pioneering way of looking at coalitional politics. It's uh, I haven't come across many books that really kind of approach it in the way that you describe. No, it's 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 a it's really a, a um, um, it's really a subset of foreign policy analysis scholarship. Um, mainly, it's it's a wide literature in uh, comparative politics or domestic politics, um, European domestic politics uh, studies. But really, hasn't hasn't uh, it's only in the last decade I think there's an emerging uh, scholarship and a group of scholars always the same names. Um, right. But, but I think uh, and I think within that scholarship, Sibel is it's a book long book long study. Uh, I think uh, Juliet Carbo also had a really good book on coalitions and foreign policies, and I think that was kind of the the first kind of pioneer book. Sibel I think takes it to another level, but I think now we. We need a more a broader comparative agenda, looking at also at all these cases I mentioned, Global South, uh, but also maybe a wider, uh, wider. And, and I think it's also the kind of intra-coalition or uh, coalition opposition, um, uh, basically bargaining dynamics. And I've told this to Sibel once, it doesn't only apply to coalitions. I think you can actually talk about a wider set of uh, political bargaining when it comes to foreign policy. And it's something I think could help also the our broader IR scholarship uh, to look at this at the domestic level. Um, so I really recommend um, Sibel's book for both, um, uh, maybe not intro IR uh, classes, but F FPA definitely classes. And, and again, also I said uh, research design methods courses. I think it's a really nice template for uh, those that are, those uh, early graduate students who are looking for uh, for ways to have a, provide a convincing, I think, research design. Um, so that was the one book, my uh, link to the, my uh, interest in FBA and coalition politics. The other book is, and this is where it relates a little bit to what Crystal was talking about, is uh, to talk about migration and also in the Indian South Asia context, but here between Southeast Asia and South Asia. It's a recent book. This one is just came out just a few months ago. It's um, And it's a book from an historian. It's not an IR scholar, but I think it helps expand also a little bit our, our um, both our theoretical and um, methodological horizons. And it's called Boats in the Storm, Law, Law, Migration, and Decolonization in South and Southeast Asia from 1942 to 1962 uh, from Kalyani Ramnath. Um, this is a Stanford University Press book. Uh, as I said, it's not IR book per se, but does discuss, I think, important IR and transnational phenomena, uh, namely histories, I think, of migration and displacement. And she provides a really interesting original perspective. Um, and I think it contributes to the IR. I, I, IR 
is not just focusing on international systemic factors, as I mentioned, but is also very much uh, state-centric um, debates and narratives. And uh, and look, so it looks at the colonization for that state-centric narrative in South and Southeast Asia, and really marginalized the individual stories of traders, merchants, um, financiers, uh, laborers, uh, migrant laborers, etc., who had been moving, just like Crystal was mentioning in Andra Wright's book, also in between Southeast Asia and South Asia in a very fluid fashion, um, uh, late 19th century, but all the way to 19 to the 1942 to 1962 when she starts her book. So, very simple question uh, in the opening uh, pages drives, I think, the book is where were you in 1942? And she argues this is could be the question that a lot of that was asked by a lot of government officials in the decolonization process after 1942 uh, about in these legal disputes. And she so she builds on these questions of of the um, these basically all these imperial post-colonial authorities were asking the hundreds of thousands of people, many of whom had migrated from India to these different places, but migrated back to India because of the um, because of the Japanese invasion of Burma, Burma, Myanmar, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and or, or threatening at least Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and Malaya, uh, Malaysia, and Singapore during World War II. So she, uh, it's a very detailed, uh, close uh, archival examination of what she argues are could be understood as seemingly individual, banal, or mundane legal disputes about unpaid debts, income taxes, remittance, money, um, re re uh, movement, or uh, writing up wills, uh, getting travel permits, uh, determining citizenship, because this becomes an issue during the colonization, post-imperial uh, period. And she really tells us, um, I think, a new post-war history of South and Southeast Asia and via the pr a perspective that is often marginalized, I think, in IR scholarship of people, of individual people that experience the effects of war and of also uh, then decolonization in the immediate aftermath of War II. And I think for that very detailed individual people's legal history, uh, she really provides, I think, a much more, uh, more rich and much more comprehensive um, set of intertwined histories of Southeast Southeast Asia. And maybe, uh, and shows us that these are intertwined actually, and they're not as artificially divided as we would think if we look at, at state-centric narrative. So she pulls all these together to give, an, uh, I think, a different narrative. And one interesting argument I found that she sort of um, unpacks is uh, uh, there's all these visible events that happen in the decolonization process in that area. Whereas, you know, we focus a lot on partition and in South Asian context. We focus a lot on the Asian Relations Conference of 1945. Um, we look a lot, we, we focus on abandoned conference. So we have this, this idealized vision of, um, of networks of solidarities between these different decolonized nations. But there's a different pace of decolonization happening in that area. And that affects all these individuals. So through that bottom-up kind of narrative, she shows how this is a little bit more complex than this uh, idealized narrative that we've had in IR scholarship. Um, and uh, and the, also the, the political discourses that we also focus on in IR that give us uh, more uh, um, an argument about we, we have all these labels. We kind of retroactively put on that, on that historical period of evacuees, repatriates, citizens, et cetera. But this was actually, but much more complex at the time. So, and she shows how the, the, the uh, beyond these, what we saw as uh, nascent race citizenship regimes at the time and divergent political trajectories of decolonization, it was more complex and fluid for all these individuals that were trying navigating between these different uh, phenomena happening. So I think it's really, 
it's a very interesting new story. Uh, it's, she shows that it's a fluid, fluctuating uh, uh, history uh, between the 40s and the 60s in the context of imperial collapse. Again, imperial collapse is also something, a phenomenon that we don't study, I think, enough in IR. Uh, it's a, it's a, an abrupt transition uh, that we all, uh, we don't uh, suddenly, we don't theorize, I think, enough. And uh, and it also links to a lot of, the, I think, the great work emerging in migration and transnational mobility. Uh, and it provides, I think, even if it's not specifically IR, it provides, I think, a lot of proper theoretical and morphological tools to understand this more, these more fluid, living, I think, uh, phenomena. Um, and I think it's, you know, this, these accounts of post-imperial fluid spaces of belonging uh, in the Indian Ocean uh, can tell us a lot about also uh, mobility between South Asia and the Middle East, between India and the Gulf states, as also in Andreas Wright's book that, uh, that Crystal mentioned, and also could also inform our contemporary understanding of migration and transnational uh, politics more generally. So I really recommend that book, um, and I think there could be a Really good dialogue between IR scholarship and and these this emerging scholarship also in uh, in diplomatic history or trans migration uh, studies etc. That's, That's really That's interesting, true. Nico. I I, I um, you know you made me re I, I think this is you know really compelling and I, I I agree with you. I think by looking at these you know other disciplines, it can inform a lot, especially because IR makes a lot of historical claims about the for state formation and the the formation of the international system. And as you were talking about this last book, I recalled Nandita Sharma's uh, recent book as well, just came out a couple of years ago called Home Rule: National Sovereignty and the Separation of Natives and Migrants, where she talks about you know citizenship regimes and the, you know, political separation between natives and migrant populations, which I think also kind of informs this discussion, you know, as well as I guess, you know, you can think of Radhika uh, Mongia's book on yeah. uh, Indian migration and empire, right, this colonial genealogy of the modern state, which really informs this kind of or, or should inform these wider discussions within international relations as well. Yeah, this, uh, I think in both books, I think they really relate to each other. Mangia's book also, because I think there is a colonial genealogy kind of work, to not quote too much uh, French <laughs> French philosophical scholars, but I think there's a lot we can learn from, from that work to understand these, these gradual uh, fluid processes that happened in that period and in that particular geographical space. Yeah, that's terrific. And that's a that came out in 2023? Yeah, yeah. With Stanford? With Stanford, yeah, with Stanford University Press, uh, that's terrific. Uh, it's interesting because the uh, the books that you've cited are all kind of actually uh, fit very nicely with uh, my two selections um, that are purely IR books, but in a way, in in, in a way that you just described, um, in terms of the kind of depth of scholarship, either at the transnational level or regional level. Um, with 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 your recommendations, they really illuminate these kind of larger IR theories. So I, I really take to heart the point that you say in terms of how, um, if the scope of the book is purely regional um, or, you know, uh, focused in a subfield like foreign policy analysis, it could still speak to these broader IR um, uh, themes and concepts and and theories. And, uh, and I think it's especially so in the case of my first selection, um, which is a book that's been highly anticipated, its release has been anticipated, because is by one of the most distinguished scholars of IR, um, uh, certainly in the last 35 years or so, Barry Buzan, who 
is Emeritus Professor in the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Um, uh, the book is called Making Global Society, uh, a study of humankind across three eras. It came out in July of 2023 in the Cambridge series in international um, uh, relations. Um, a few words perhaps about uh, Barry Bizan, who I should disclose was my uh, master's advisor at the LSE and um, someone whose career I've really uh, looked up to and followed very closely. So my subjectivity is all over this pick because I've also been waiting for this uh, book for a very long time. And I've heard little snippets and presentations, parts of it by Barry at various ISA um, annual meetings, um, uh, conferences. Uh, but this really, I think, builds nicely on, on, on Barry's career in a way that has really spanned different eras. And one could even write a book about the evolution of Barry Buzan's thought on international politics. He's been so uh, such a pioneering figure as, a, you know, in many respects, one of the founding um, theoreticians of security studies, for instance, um, his book, People, States and Fear, that came out in 1991, The Logic of Anarchy, Neorealism to Structural Realism in 1993, um, Security, a Framework for Analysis in 97. And then he kind of turned his attention to understanding regions, regions and powers with Ole Waver, the structure of international security. And then um, perhaps more recently, what he's known for, especially to graduate students and more junior scholars, is the person who reconvened the English School of International Relations, which um, really blends in uh, historical sociology and uh, global and world history to uh, give us uh, a, a different way of theorizing in IR beyond the dominance of the mainstream theoretical schools, realism, liberalism, constructivism, uh, even uh, critical theory, etc. Um, and this book is, in many respects, I think, um, uh, uh, really encapsulates all of those specialties that uh, Barry over the years has written uh, volumes uh, on quite literally. Um, in it, he proposes a new approach to making international relations a truly global um, discipline that, as the description of the book says, transcends both Eurocentrism and comparative civilizations. In other words, in IR, at the theoretical level especially, we tend to either have books that kind of superimpose a, um, uh, not in a malicious way in any uh, uh, way at all, but nevertheless, a Eurocentric vocabulary on understanding global politics, or at the other end, you have an approach that looks in isolation at kind of civilizations and compares them. So you either have a very kind of a, um, a, a kind of a universalist approach or a very particularist approach. And Barry's understanding of global is to really stretch or break free from these ends of the spectrum to look at the spectrum as a whole. And that's the, what the global really constitutes here. And here, um, he really gives us a grand narrative of the story of humankind as a whole across three eras, uh, looking at material conditions, social uh, uh, structures, uh, but also a lot of ideational changes in uh, global politics or the evolution of the global. I even hesitate to say politics because he's that's just you know, one aspect. And he deploys the English school's idea of primary institutions um, to, to really get this story across three domains, the interpolities, so relationships between polities, 
transnational relationships through um, uh, nation states as they develop in the especially modern period and interhuman, the, uh, the relationships between human beings um, and how at the cultural level, at the kind of more social structure level globally, they have actually accounted for changes in uh, the way we understand the global um, and, and the linkages between uh, those different um, units. Um, and it's a remarkably innovative, frankly, I'm still processing this. I, I'm, I couldn't sum it up. It's it's one of those, you know, classic Barry Bizan books that it takes a couple of years for people to really be able to um, understand the vocabulary and then to be able to think through it. Um, I have no doubt that it's going to take a few workshops and you know conferences and panels at the isa to really flesh out and but that's the in a way the genius of bear buzan is that he um doesn't take it for granted the kind of existing vocabulary that we have and he lets his curiosity kind of see relationships and make those linkages and narrate them uh and then uh, you know let the chips fall where they may so it really uh, toward the force, this book, uh, Making Global Society, A Study of Humankind Across Three Eras, uh, came out in uh, July 2023 uh, with Cambridge. The second book is another Cambridge book. Um, we have not received any kickbacks from any of the presses, I should say here, um, where these are just the books that we've selected. This book is one that I haven't been able to quite shake off ever since I read it to interview the author for the ISRR uh, uh, podcast interview. It's a book by Swati Srivastav. It's called Hybrid Sovereignty in World Politics. Um, Srivastav is uh, associate professor at Purdue University um, in Indiana. And her work, again, is one of those kind of very innovative to me, um, uh, kind of conceptual rethinking of world politics. And at the heart of it is this notion of hybrid sovereignty which really describes overlapping relations between public as well as private actors in uh, global uh, uh, politics, especially in terms of power relations. What I think is refreshing about this book especially, and this is a project that is taking Shravastov to her next project I've heard on the politics of big tech, is to demonstrate how actually sovereignty far from having public authority, nation states, as its kind of chief representatives and um, a, a, a concentration of centralized power, it has private entities oftentimes uh, playing just as important a role in uh, delimiting its boundaries uh, globally, but also setting the course for the expansion of political units power over other political units. And in the book, she does a very nice job of demonstrating this, how it has worked in uh, uh, from the uh, kind of uh, uh, the modern period to the uh, through the operations of the English East India Company, for instance, as a kind of a form of, pro you know, chartered private enterprise that really dictates and drives forward the mandate of the British Empire um, to more recent times with the proliferation of private contractors, not only um, aiding uh, state operations in war fighting, but increasingly uh, acting as a, a kind of a hidden 
uh, source of authority uh, uh, in the foreign policy and, um, uh, and and security policies of of states. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, with the advent of the information society, but also the proliferation of ever more specialized, and we are in the era of AI right now, um, new technologies, the kind of new centers of power, big, major big tech corporations like Meta, um, uh, OpenAI, uh, Google, etc., that are exercising the form of sovereignty of their own as well, and how understanding global politics only in, in the uh, terms specified by uh, the kind of conventional IR narratives of nation states really misses how power is exercised globally. Um, and again, there's a, a, a link to my interview, a much more in-depth interview about this book with um, Shervastav, so I won't go further into it, but that really stood out and it's a book that has really made me um, think of how the nature of power is changing globally over and over again as I read the um, da daily um, headlines. And that came out in 20, 2022, but the paperback was, I, I think, released in 23 um, um, recently um, from Cambridge University Press um, as well. So uh, those are my two picks that are much more IR kind of better <laughs> meta grand level. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad we have a nice a representation of different levels of analysis as it were another probably old tired <laughs> term in, in, in IR but but nevertheless um, uh, yeah um, very interesting and meshes well I think with you know my first uh, the first choice that I mentioned as well Eric Kaliner's book the contested world economy so I think these you know these new approaches of thinking more globally about uh, you know I guess supposedly global field and discipline are, are, are some themes, cross-cutting themes here today. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I feel like, I mean, we're not commenting on trends in IR where, you know, these are the kind of notable books at the end of this year that we're talking about. But in a way, wouldn't you agree that that seems like more and more, the more ISAs we go to, the more book stands we look for, that that actually a scholarship is very much going toward that direction. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, of looking at kind of this hybridity, as it were, of of the global and how it encompasses, you know, just more units than that one conventional theories have, have generally given us. Um, wonderful. Um, so once again, um, let's go around and say the names of the books and the uh, presses and the publication year. I'll start um, uh, making global society. A Study of Humankind Across Three Eras by Barry Buzan that came out with Cambridge University Press in July 2023. And my second pick was Hybrid Sovereignty and World Politics by Swati Srivastav, also uh, by Cambridge University Press and came out in 2022. Nico, let's take going yeah, to reverse so order. My two, my two picks were... And I, I just want to admit, I almost also uh, included uh, Hybrid Sovereignty from, from Swati oh. because... I do. I do uh, really like the the theory, theoretical argument and the categorization, right. and I use it in my NTIR class because I think it also uh, is directly something that our students uh, learn a lot from, and because they they also they they, they understand that there's uh, sovereignty. They they 
the, the way we define sovereignty traditionally in IR, in the mainstream IR, and I, I offer a little bit as a narrative at the beginning of the class, doesn't really fit with the kind of complex reality they see every day. So right. it's a useful it's a useful framework. But my two picks in the end were uh, governing abroad, uh, coalition politics and foreign policy in Europe from Sibel Okte at the University of Michigan Press. And the other one was uh, Boats in the Storm, law, 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 Migration and Decolonization in South and Southeast Asia, 1942-1962 from Kalyani Ramnath and Stanford uh, University Press. Crystal. Yeah, and my two were um, uh, the contested world economy, the deep and global roots of international political economy by Eric Heliner, published in Cambridge University Press in the summer of 2023. Um, and also Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil um, by Andrea Wright, published in 2021 in Stanford University Press. Wonderful. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me in talking about the our most notable reads of uh, 2023. We will have a, a link posted on uh, where you're accessing this um, podcast uh, to other recommendations by other members of the editorial team. Uh, but thank you for joining me in, in this conversation. Thank you, Hans. Thanks for hosting us and happy holidays to everybody. And happy holidays to everyone, indeed. Thank you.